Welcome to Learning with Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell Thompson. We cover biotech and science-related topics on the show, such as startups working on antibiotic drugs or colon cancer, to venture capitalists talking about funding and how that worked, to people talking about how they found a science-backed startup. Two, and this is one of my favorite parts, people talking about specific science-related topics, such as whales or protein engineering. You're really going to get a lot, and it's all going to be about science on this podcast. Today, we're joined with CEO Matt Engel, applied scientist Kunal, and hardware and fabrication lead Yafan at Paradromics. Here's a brief synopsis of what Paradromics is working on. They're developing high-volume, bio-directional data streaming capabilities between the brain and computers. In this episode, we get into their startup journey, what brought the three of them together, their special skills, the things that they appreciate about each other, so you get a bit of the science, what they're building, their personal lives, and a bit of their interests as well. I imagine if I have the ability to basically have a computer in my head, and then access all the internet instead of like looking at my phone and having a low bandwidth that I would become better than I am now. In some ways, you already have a pretty high bandwidth connection to uh, the digital world. I mean, for people who are sighted, your, your two retinas have, each have about a million nerve fibers that connect to your visual system. So in some, in some ways, I think the uh, benefits of brain-machine interfaces to healthy people for those kinds of applications may be a little bit overstated, I would say. I think we're, you know, we're designed to, to take in data through our visual system, through our auditory system, and our brain is pretty specialized, I would say, to process those inputs. And that, that's just kind of my, my opinion about that. I, I, to me, the really exciting place where brain-machine interfaces can go initially is through prosthetics, and then the sort of big picture would be when you can have a brain implant that can interface at scale with an area of the brain, you can go in and start asking whether a technology like that can be used to treat conditions like depression, schizophrenia, neurodegenerative diseases. I mean, these are, these are diseases that aren't very well treated by conventional pharmaceuticals. You know, there's only so much specificity that you can build into a small molecule into a pill. A single molecule binds thousands and thousands of receptors, and there are thousands of different receptor types in the brain, and there are 85 billion neurons in the brain. And so what you have is a system where you just don't have enough knobs and dials and controls to address symptoms without creating a lot of other side effects. Potentially, though, with really high bandwidth brain machine interfaces, you could go in and interact with the brain on its own terms by directly modulating the firing in a specific area of the brain. Do you think we're close at all to something like that? Or are, is, that, is that like, you know, 50 years in the future? Oh, like I don't think it's 50 years in the future. I don't think it's one year in the future. But I think that the technology that people, including paradromics, are building right now will be the way, will be the best way to modulate brain function in the lifetime of people here and and indeed maybe even in the next decade. The great thing about these devices is that once you have a high band, once you have a physical high bandwidth interface to the brain, then it becomes to some degree more of a computational problem as well for how to approach these, for how to adapt it to prosthetics or how to adapt it for electroceuticals. And it's not necessarily the case that you would have to make a completely different physical device in every scenario. 
And I think that's that's one of the reasons we're really excited about this technology. It's because it kind of allows this really broad approach. It's more like it's more like building a computer chip than a phone, if that makes sense. Makes sense. Then I have a question for the three of you. What? Because we kind of we've been talking about the future. We've been talking about like what we're building. What What are the roles that the three of you are playing in being pivotal and making that future happen? Where we have that type of interface where the bandwidth starts going up. I would say that we're not, it's not just the three of us, but there's a whole team. I think we're 14 now at Paradromics. And what we're, what we're doing is there's been a lot of great work in academia about how to interface with neurons and even some early work, like for instance, from the BrainGate program, inserting electrode arrays of 100 electrodes into the motor cortex of human patients who are unable to move and then allowing them to either operate a mouse on a screen or to control a robotic arm. There's been a lot of really good proof of principle work that says that that, that can be done. But the, the actual hardware that's being used is, in our opinion, well, even objectively, it's t- more than 20 years old now. There's no reason why we have to be using antiquated hardware for brain-machine interfaces. We think that we could have similar devices but benefiting from some of the new advances in micro-machining and microfabrication technology that could maybe have as many as 20 to 100 times more electrodes per unit area in the brain and could support data rates that are more than 100 times higher than current technology would afford. And so what we're interested in is we're interested in exploring the, the technologies that can be applied now that don't have big fundamental unproven uh, scientific hypotheses underlying them where you know we can deploy it now and deliver a huge amount of impact to patients and to the field of neural interfacing. And I think that's kind of where paradromics sits. So on the other hand, you have like academic groups that are looking at really far out there ways of interacting with the brain that involve genetic engineering and two-photon microscopy or sort of nanoparticles, really cool ways of interacting with the brain, but they're really, really far away. And then on the other hand, you have traditional biomedical device manufacturers that are just hawking 30-year-old stuff and haven't been really investing in research and development at all for the last 30 years. And we think that there's kind of a middle path to deliver really exciting cutting edge stuff that can be deployed in the next five years. Well, I think that's a good overview, what you're trying to achieve. I, I am curious, what in, in the roles as CEO or the hardware and fabrication lead or as applied scientist, how do you guys individually contribute to making that come about? <laughs> yeah. Well, probably the most important thing that I do now, I'm a scientist by background, but now the most important thing that I do is find really good people because, and this is for like anyone who's really interested in what they're doing and super technical, you have to realize that like people, you personally don't scale. And the amount of impact that I could have in this field as a single scientist was limited to like the 24 hours in the day and two hands. but. I've since been able to find people who are just, first of all, better than me, but also more numerous. And uh, (laughs) that's probably my most important thing is scouting out people, making sure they have the resources that they need to succeed, 
um, helping guide people. I mean, there's not, luckily I have a really good team, so it's not a lot of like top-down management, like factory floor manager. Uh, it's a bit more collaborative, but I, I would say for me, that's the most important thing. What is Yafan and Kunal, like what, what things do they, are, are they better at you at? So that they can get a nice compliment and it can be on the record. <laughs> uh, yeah, what are, what are we getting right now? <laughs> well, I would say both of them are better engineers and physicists than I am. I'm a biologist. I would say that Canole really has Canole really has his stuff together and really keeps everyone in line. He's been leading the release of our first uh, system, the Argo system that he'll tell you about. Yifan is, I would say, probably the He's probably like the crack shot sort of dead eye engineer in the group that we give our hardest problems to. Doesn't necessarily mean he uh, he gives us good solutions, but we give the hardest. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Matt. He's the special forces. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from from my position, I think that my most important contribution is with the system integration challenges. Basically, the physical device that we're building is in more ways than one, not only a really complex system, but hitting all of the targets that we're aiming for is effectively like threading a needle. Mm-hmm. And threading a needle with a 20 micron or smaller micro wire that we're using to uh, implant into the brain. Um, basically, there's a lot of physical challenges when you look at it. There's everything from surgical and implantation challenges to the packaging of the device, to the bonding of the device, to the actual material selection and construction there. And every decision that you make for what you're doing impacts every other part of the system as well. So building, building that and putting it together is definitely what my focus, what my major focus is. And it's, uh, it's pretty challenging, to be honest. When you have 15 moving parts and they're all, <laughs> they're all basically balanced on a knife edge. I'm glad, I'm glad our team is really good. <laughs> yeah, and then, so like Yvan was saying, there's a whole lot of stuff that plays together in this, in the, in the human implantable device. And, you know, there are questions to be answered. But some of those questions we can answer by just kind of lifting some constraints. Uh, so we can lift the constraint on the device having to be implantable and we can still collect a lot of neural data and answer those questions with a device that doesn't need to sit inside the brain. It can sit outside. And so that's our first product, which is the Argo device. It's the neural recording system. So I'm managing that project where we say, okay, you know, the, the neural implant is a few years out. We want to collect data now and we want that data to feed into the development of this, of this implantable device. And so we're managing, I'm managing the, uh, the development and the integration and the deployment of a device using much more, I mean, much of what we do uses as much as possible off-the-shelf parts, but uh, by lifting these constraints, you can use even more off-the-shelf parts and less custom equipment. So trying to get a sense of how we can be a couple, three years ahead of them ahead of the implantable development in terms of collecting data and then just feeding that that information back in to hopefully uh, help them resolve some of those constraints and say, you know, these things 
work well, let's follow that path. When trying so to design a, a really complicated system on a really tight timeline, it's really important to, uh, people say, orthogonalize problems, but basically like split them off so that you can solve them independently. And that, that's something we think about a lot. And one of the ways to solve that independently is to make uh, a device that is acutely implantable. So you can, in, in the context of a single surgery or a single experiment, you can do a craniotomy, you can open up the skull and implant this for a few hours, collect data and take it out. And the data is really valuable and the way we collect that data is really valuable. But it does mean that we don't have to think about some of the other questions that Yifan spends most of his days probably thinking about how to integrate all of these. Well, a lot of the um, problems are data-driven, and that's really the feedback cycle. There's, we work with biological <laughs> systems, we work with, we work with living systems. You just have to collect data for a lot of it. It's not as simple as going down, going to a whiteboard and writing equations. You really need feedback. And you know, Lowell, you were asking me what they have that's better than me. I thought of another one. I could probably list this all day. But one thing that is really helpful for anyone who's like listening to this podcast and you know in school or thinking about going into like a STEM field, developing a physical intuition, I think, is really useful physical, like the laws of physics, you know, like we all have everyday intuition. Like you can think of like, how strong is a broomstick? Could I like put it across two cinder blocks and stand on it? You know, like when do things break? Can you lift something? Like, can you lift something up? We have like around us and the stuff we touch really good physical intuition, but actually like when stuff starts scaling to be much larger or much smaller than we touch every day, our intuition actually starts to break down. A great example of that is what are called like Reynolds numbers. We swim in a pool and we have, there are certain physics that allow us to swim, but you put like a small bug in a pool and they are like caught up in the surface tension and it's like kind of like us in honey. Your fan's smiling at me because I probably didn't explain that correctly. But um, like, I'm just smiling because you mixed up Reynolds number and surface tension. And the <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, no, okay. Okay, but like a boat traveling through the water has to do with that. So at any rate. <laughs> okay, see, I told you they were better. But the point is, is that indeed, like, it does get really hard sometimes to have an intuitive sense about how really small things will act in really complex systems. It gets to the point where, like, no one's ever physically touched it before, so you have to understand things more mathematically or more by way of example of sort of simple experiments. And uh, that's really, I think that's something that's really helpful for people when they go into a complex field. And this just occurred to me, I think there's a, there's a common criticism of, of physicists where they say, you know, let's take the system and treat it as ideal and then make one change. But the fact is that when you're developing a complex system, you want to simplify as many things down to an ideal system or as close to ideal system as you can. And so it helps that, you know, looking at the, the 15 things that play together for your fan, I, you know, I can say you can idealize 12 of those in some way. And then so look at the other three, collect some data, yeah. feed that back into the development of either one of these devices. Yeah. Knowing like, um, that's another place where your intuition comes in, knowing where you can simplify and where you can't. Yeah, so that's something that... I mean, on a day-to-day -day basis, we do that all of the time. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and it helps to have, that's another area where intellectual diversity is really critical because everyone comes from a slightly different background and everyone's intuition is a subject of their experience. 
And so the more people you have from different backgrounds, the more your collective intuition can cover every you know, possible scenario. I think that the one unifying thread there, and this is something we look for as well, is that people who work with us, everyone thinks deeply about the problems that they tackle. And it's not only the case that, say, you have an intuition and that's the only thing you go on, but you really test it in your mind and you think deeply about it. Think about the physics, think about the underlying mathematics behind it, and make sure that it's really validated that way. That makes sense. And just to, just to come back to Canal, because I hope people aren't mean to physicists, because the idea that getting down to first order principles, I think, is a, a very valuable thing to do. And the, the good example is, you know, Elon Musk, you know, like he does that to all this stuff and look how good he is and, or at least how well he's doing. So just as to like a, to touch base on, on something you, you comment, commented on, though, we, like we got into a lot. Uh, one thing I definitely wanted to ask is a lot of people talk about minimal viable product, right? But I think it's also good to think about what's the viable experience you want people to have. So from from where you want it to be, basically, what is the what is the end goal experience that you want people to have with what you're developing? Yeah, I think in the medical device market, I, I don't like the term minimally viable product because I don't that in the medical device market that sometimes can seem a little bit callous. But I think like the experience that we're trying to deliver is is specific to a spe- to patient populations, but for the first group of people that we, we'd like to help, people with severe combined motor and speech deficits, it would mean freeing them, freeing them up from the communications bottleneck that's imposed by not being able to speak or type fluently, allowing them to communicate as fast as they can think. I think that's, that's the first bar that we want to clear to feel like we've delivered meaningful impact to people. How long until you think we'll, I mean, I think we're getting pretty close, but I'm, I'm curious how long until you guys get there? We are aiming to be able to go into clinical trials in the early 2020s. So still some significant development left then, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's fair to say. Will you need thinking of like the team you'll need to like run through that? Is there, do you have everyone you need to get to that point? And then when you're at that point, who would you need to kind of get it through the clinical trials? as like a high level thing to think about? Obviously, we, we don't have everyone on the team today that we need, but I think that the core engineering team is in place. I think our network of clinical collaborators is in place. I think we have the investor network that we need, have a lot of great investors that came on in this last round. I think that everyone is one. everyone that we need to go there is one degree of separation away from us. And at this point, on a probably on a first name basis. So online, there were some pictures of Argo, and so I was curious, what are the actual dimensions? Because I couldn't really tell how big it was. It's about as big as a one liter bottle. You might know the exact dimensions. Uh, it's about six inches long, a little bit more, like the span of your hand from end to end, like from the tip of that bundle to the very back. And yeah, like you, I've got a Starbucks, one of those plastic cups here in in front of me, and it's about that big around or slightly bigger and about the same length or slightly longer. So maybe that gives you a, gives you a sense of how, how large it is. So then if you're familiar with the, the book Old Man's War by John Scalzi, there is a, a device in that universe where they basically have, you know, the, the future that you're, you, we've been talking about where you can have something in your brain and kind of interfaces with everything really easily. And it basically gives the soldiers everything they need to be effective killing machines. And while I, I'm sure that's not what you're trying to develop, but I'm curious... From where you are today at like the, you know, like a 
like a Starbucks coffee cup type size. How how long do you think it'll take before we're able to get to that level? And do you think you do you think you guys are going to be the ones to do it? So so actually, as a side note, I tried to convince everybody here to change the name of the company to BrainPal <laughs> for a while, and Bring I thought because I thought it was hilarious. Um, but but people didn't bite on it. Probably the connotation wasn't good because it was being used for soldiers in the book. Twenties fourth clinical trial is that device that would be implantable. It actually, the biggest reason why we can't shrink the device down today doesn't have to do with any of the physical architecture. It has to do with the heat that's generated in digitizing the data. So right now, we, we are building a research system. Researchers want all of the data. And so we're, we're digitizing and streaming about 30 gigabits per second. And the, uh, using state-of-the-art analog-to-digital converters right now, which is what turn continuous electrical signals into ones and zeros, it generates a lot of heat, enough heat that you couldn't, you couldn't put it onto a nickel-sized device without that device getting very hot. Everything in principle can be put onto a nickel-sized device, but the constraint for scaling right now is heat. So that's one of the places that Paradromics has been working over the last year is um, coming up with really clever ways to extract features from the analog data stream so that we only have to digitize a factor of about 1,000 less data in total. And suddenly that means that the amount of heat that you're generating is a factor of, you know, 1,000 less and uh, you, you can actually put the device into a nickel-sized package. And then implant it. And then implant it. Yeah, so we don't actually see that as a fundamental obstacle. And, and we think that we can stay on the schedule that we, we mentioned. But again, like I said uh, a few minutes ago, with the Argo, you get to simplify some of the problems. And so we have a path forward for, for reducing the power, for reducing the heat. But we can still collect a whole lot of data without doing that using exactly. a device like the Argo. And so... We are building that so that we can drive a lot of other decisions with the data we collect. Exactly. So we don't want to have to we don't want to have to develop all the hard, all the new hardware and then do all of the analytics. Rather, what we can do is we can collect a ton of data with the system that Canal is managing, and then have that feed into the system design, have allow us mm -hmm. to test out ideas with what we call the neural data pipeline. Again, if this is the key to moving fast, is figuring out which problems are independent from one another and can be uh, tested up separately. I'm, I'm just thinking of like how you would stop it from being hot. I, I know like you guys are kind of like working around the problem, but I'm just, I'm just, oh, yeah. there's yeah. like a material you can make it out of. Yeah. It has to do with how much data you, you must digitize. This is something that I should really give a lot of credit to Rob Edgington, uh, one of our engineers, in, and uh, Amir Khan. They've been working on this with. Uh, CMOS design firm called Kylesti based out of Belgium. And one of the insights uh, that we had when we were developing this is that you don't necessarily, you know, the standard processing scheme would be to digitize all of the data and then to do some, and then to do some processing on the digital data to compress it. But what we, what we realized is that, you know, if you have to digitize first and then compress, you've already violated your heat budget. So what we've been working on are ways that we can process the data in the analog domain. So do our com computation in simple analog circuits. And that way we, we can downsample the data and di digitize less data in total. 
And so we actually come up with, I think, a pretty slick way of doing that. That makes sense. I was I was just uh, running through my head if there was any other materials I knew that would be good for insulating from heat that would be helpful as like a like a co thing to do that it's independent and that would come together helpful. But unfortunately, I'm not a material scientist, so I couldn't come up with anything. That that sounds like an effective way to get around it. Yeah, you wouldn't want to cook the brain or get it too hot. That just makes sense for people who are listening. You don't want upset yes. homeostasis of the brain, and you're wondering like why do they care so much about that? And it's like imagine sticking something that's really hot on your on your brain. Like you wouldn't feel it, but it would do stuff to you. Well, you can just—you probably just don't want to try the thing you're trying to treat. Yeah, I mean, you can just think of uh, a few degrees uh, Fahrenheit, and uh, you know, you have a fever, and you—and everyone knows what it's like to have a fever. It can be a little disorienting, so you don't want to use local fever. That makes sense. So, the, I'm curious, compared to other people out there, other startups out there, kind of like Neuralink and stuff. Like, how do you guys compare? Like, is there someone out there that you're? You're thinking, oh, they might be able to do this better than us, or are you are you sitting on top of the mountain, and be like, haha, we have all the IP and we will do this given the right amount of time and, and money? I would say that we've been very open about what we're doing. You know, we we have two government grants. We have uh, we we had an SBIR from the NIH, and now we have we're participating in DARPA's SD program. We're pretty open with people about what we're doing technically. You know, of course, we're filing patents and we're doing things that we need to do to protect ourselves, but there's not that much secrecy surrounding paradromics. I mean, our backgrounds are, you know, open book. You can see, come from really solid technical background. You can ask us about what we're doing. We'll tell you. I don't actually know what other startups in this space are working on. They haven't been as open. Even so it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to say. I would think, I haven't looked into Neuralink, but I thought, I thought that was like Elon Musk's thing. He liked always to make things open. But yeah, yeah, he's really open about his other companies, but <laughs> yeah, not 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 really as yeah. much. Yeah. Now I really want to know what they're doing. You got you guys. I will. That's kind of the the uh, a question I have is like, why why do a startup? I guess it's more mad because like the rest of you aren't founders. I think we don't think of it in that those terms. It took a whole team to found Paradromics. I mean, in the sense that, like, why why start something versus maybe join someone else's team is the is the question. Like, what made? Well, I guess we what was, only, yeah. you know we were the only game in town when we started. Yeah, I mean, Neuralink and others are, are out there now since you mentioned them. But when Matt first talked to us about this about starting this, there was no other team. Yeah, I mean, in that way, we were actually done a favor by Neuralink coming onto the scene. Elon really raised the profile of the entire field. And it definitely benefited us, I think. That's true. I think actually, as for why we did it in the first place, also calls back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of why are we doing this specifically? Why not, say, be doing it in a research lab? And that was one thing I think, Matt, you can talk more about this, but... We started out, you know, as researchers. I mean, this was a, this was a research project. The original question was, how can we record from as many cells as possible? Uh, using uh, practical recording technology. And uh, as we started mapping out our solution that involves these large bundles of microwires, we realized that there really wasn't a fundamental scientific hypothesis behind this. It was an engineering project. It's really the kind of project I think better suited for industry because there are a lot of hard problems that have to go into making this work, which is why we have so many great uh, scientists and engineers working in paradromics around the clock making it work. But individually, each of these projects is not necessarily like a PhD thesis or like an interesting paper to read. 
But when you put them all together as a whole, it's a huge advance. And this is exactly the kind of thing that's hard to do in academia, because everyone wants to know, who's, am I going to be first author on this paper? Where is it going to publish? Is this enough to graduate? It has to be driven by you know, individual achievements that can be broken off and sold to publishers or sold as theses. Whereas in a pro, you know, to make a, real, a systems integration project work, sometimes people have to work on problems that are not in and, them, in and of themselves sexy, but are totally essential to getting the core operation working. I think that's also one of the ways that, say, doing a startup really rewards that because at the end of the day, even if you yourself work on a small part of it, that individually wasn't sexy. If the whole thing works, then everyone gets paid off yeah. at the end. Yeah, I find it really nice to be working on something with a bunch of other people, Yeah, knowing that we're all aligned. The thing that you get in a startup that I don't think I've ever seen in an academic project is being able to scale things like that you can get in industry. Because we, you know, we've all worked as grad students and you have you know, a couple of samples a month couple of samples a year, depending on your field. But to get the sort of volume you need, which is the sort of unsexy work that uh, Matt was talking about, just like making samples, making more of these uh, electrode bundles, that kind of scale comes in industry in a way that you really can't get. Or really, I've never really seen an academia. And, and so it really pushed this field forward. I think this is what, I, I can't remember Matt telling me a few years ago, he's like, I think I just need to start a company to push this. That was kind of the push, that the work itself was kind of wanting to be in a startup in industry. And then the pull was also that at the same time that we realized, holy shit, we could do this, we could really do this, we thought, wow, the biggest implication of this technology is not necessarily recording from 10,000 neurons to publish in you know, nature neuroscience, but is that we will have created a data pipe for human-machine uh, interaction that could enable advanced prosthetics, and one day enable completely different kind of bioelectronic medicine. I mean, right now there are pharmaceutical companies that are interested in wrapping a couple wires around a few nerves to try to treat diseases. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of wires implanted in the central nervous system. And the other beauty of that is if you're interested in science, it doesn't preclude any of that. You can still make those, those neural recordings that people have been interested in for a long time, but it adds a layer of things that you can do on top of that. And having all these applications and being able to impact people's lives is, is very exciting. Have you, are you guys familiar with the TV show Silicon Valley? Yes. Uh, I'm not that one here is. Uh, yeah, I keep being told that I should watch it, and then I feel like it's going to hit too close to home. So <laughs> it's, it's pretty. It's pretty real. It's pretty real. <laughs> I'm told. I'm told that, and I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. But but so there's this guy who has an artificial intelligence machine, and then like it's found out that he's kind of a pervert towards it, and but like because he was he was being all like secretive about it, and now now I think of that like everyone else, and then you guys are like the the, the Richard Hendricks team that are trying to actually do something. And, and not like keep things in the dark. I'm glad that you don't think we're the perverts. I think <laughs> but it sounds like a favorable analysis, so I'll take it. There's some parallels. Well, maybe it's best to leave it at that. <laughs> both, both, both good and bad. Both good yeah. and bad. <laughs> Have you ever seen the end or watched Lord of the Rings? Yeah. yeah. Okay. 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 I was just like, man, you know, I don't know. If, you, if you're not watching Silicon Valley and it's in your backyard, I thought maybe not. Maybe not Lord of the Rings. But so at the end of the at the, at the end of the series, 
everyone kind of all the cast members took something home that was from the series or something that was really integral to what they did. And so I'm curious at if you could think at the end of what you're done building, is there something like a moment or an experience that maybe has happened or has hasn't happened yet that you'd want to take home with you? And, and you know, maybe if it's an experience, like put it in a moving picture frame and, and look at it every day or like see it in your home or if it's like a thing like the first one that you built like is there is there a thing that you would want to capture for yourself and what is it let me tell you what i don't want to take home with me first every (laughs) every week one of our engineers a close friend of all of ours mina hannah collects all of all of his failed (laughs) projects that week and deposits them on my desk to keep me humble. <laughs> so I, so I, ha, I now in my in my office have a museum of, of paradromics failures. I think that's way of I don't know if he's trying to keep me grounded or if he's just disgruntled. I should probably, probably talk to him about that. Well, I, I guess it's good to know what you don't want. Actually, that kind of reminds me of Julius Caesar when he would go through Rome, he'd have someone follow him around saying, you're only a man, you're only a man, so he wouldn't get too egocentric, which I don't know how effective it was considering he became dictator for life. So hopefully yeah. the parallel doesn't become too strong <laughs> for you, Matt. But for the, for the rest of you, is there something that you would want or not want? Yeah, that moment where you, where you actually meet someone who is using the device that you built and whose life is improved by it, I think is going to be probably the, the most... Uh, sort of real and emotional moment for me because when you're developing this, you're kind of removed from it uh, somewhat because you know you give you hand it to someone, they go off and do experiments, and some years from now we're gonna have we're gonna actually have these devices out there. Yeah, I, I, I guess that's that's kind of the moment. Yeah, there've been a lot of moments along the way when when we first got our you know like we first got our office space, we uh, completed and, and then got selected for. Uh, uh, for these grants and so on, like every one of these, I, I can remember vividly. But I think uh, the, the point where it really sinks in is is when you when you meet someone who, who's been using this device you you worked on and felt removed from until that until that moment. I think I think long after the company has uh, IPO'd and uh, I'm writing my memoirs from my deathbed. I think we have a lot of great stories that would like to see the light of day. That uh, one day that'll be, uh, that's what I'll take back with me. That's what you're going to take your grave. Yeah. <laughs> that manuscript, that only one manuscript. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be like Mark Twain published this, you know, 100 years after. Actually, it's basically like if you imagine Silicon Valley that you talked about, and you imagine if that was real life and you had all sorts of crazy hijinks that happened. <laughs> And like somewhat detours. There are no crazy hijacks. Yeah, that's that, that's completely true. Investors, if you're listening, no crazy hijacks. <laughs> so, kind of kind of reversing it, since because I, I didn't ask the I didn't ask the rest of you why you'd want to follow Matt. So I'm curious, like I guess I mean this is kind of a dangerous question, but what made you want to go with Matt on this journey and join the team? Because Matt Matt Matt's been you know quite nice and saying good things about you, but you know feel free to be mean or I don't know, but not be mean. But like, what made you want to join? The rest of you actually so for me that was uh that's a really good question because that was one that i asked for myself for quite a while when matt was originally pitching paradromics and to be honest i wasn't convinced off of the bat that this was going to work so i spent months basically continuing to learn more about the area asking more questions and i thought that there was a reasonable answer 
to every one of those questions. And it could be practically done, and it really was just a question of making it happen. And I think that having that vision and leadership and the ability to recruit just a really great team to work around the problem, that's given me a ton of confidence. And that was what really convinced me that Matt was the right right person to lead this project. Uh, yeah, and I would say uh, by the time I... Uh... By the time I agreed to join the, the project, uh, I think Yifan had already, uh, had already agreed to join it. So I had conversations with both of them and sort of similar questions. And I don't think my questions were as deep as the ones that Yifan asked because I was a little less close to the field directly. But A, Yifan said there, were, there weren't really questions that Matt hadn't thought about and to which he didn't have a compelling answer. Even if the answer was, we still have to do this. He had a very good plan laid out for what we had to do. And B, it looked like, you know, the stuff that I worked on, the things that I'd done before, those skills were going to be transferable. I wasn't going to be totally out of my depth on day one. It's sort of a key, key question I had to ask myself, having worked in, not directly in biology, I'm a physicist by training, I've worked on energy, but I looked at the problems we're addressing here and looked at the, the questions that I looked at previously and said, yeah, I, I do actually think I have, like, my background transfers pretty well to what we're going to be doing. Because it's not directly, uh, the stuff that I do is not directly a bi biology question. It is a question of materials and physics and like simplifying the problem and, and developing a device, which is kind of what I did in my graduate work. So I don't know, Matt, you were going to say something there? Oh, I was just going to, yeah, note to viewers. Yeah. I worked on solar energy conversion. Kunal, you'll probably get a kick out of the episode I did with a lady who, who she, was, she actually was named one of Forbes 30 under 30, uh, just for you, Matt. But the... <laughs> she did she made it she, i think she's 29 but she found a way to strip the pigment from wood and it's a it's a better it gets like 3000 kelvin for uh the heat that it can take which apparently makes it more efficient i don't know there's an episode on that you might want to might want to listen to it i think I you'll we'll take a look yeah I, I haven't heard of this but i've been a little bit removed from both the 30 under 30 list and the uh and the solar <laughs> field for a couple of years <laughs> i mean you knew matt wasn't going to be there so i mean you know you, you didn't <laughs> <laughs> you didn't need to pay attention. Yeah. All right. So then I, I I keep making references. I need to stop doing that. So, but if if you, in an honest assessment, so you guys get to see each other every day for, for the three of you, just for the three of you in the room, is there something that you see the other two struggling with and, and that you, that you've helped them with or like that you've helped them with something or that you've seen them like get better over time or something like I'm sure Matt always wasn't the best leader and he's like slowly gotten better. Maybe he's just gifted. I don't know. But is there something that you've noticed other people like the other two of members of this conversation struggle with, but then slowly get better that has made you feel like, man, I'm, I'm really glad to be on the team with that guy because he gets through not knowing something or, or, or not being the best at something and slowly getting better. I, this is probably more of a super soldier example, which I know is probably not what you're looking for, <laughs> but like, I was really surprised when Canole, due to the necessity of like trying to get our first system spun up, we realized that we needed to tap someone to lead and to organize. And Canole has never managed. And I was like, well, you know, Canole, managing is not so easy, you know? <laughs> but by way of fact, like the second day on the job, but I, I was really impressed by that. Thanks, man. I <laughs> didn't always feel that way to me, just because like the growing pains look different from the outside, I guess. Definitely, actually, for for me, for Matt, I noticed uh, a transition from becoming from a scientist to a CEO. Matt was really 
he was very much a scientist when when I first met him at Stanford. Um, and to be honest, one of the one of the clearest thinkers that I had met as well in that case. But even in terms of the way that he thought about problems, it was very clear that he was a scientist and how he would present issues, where building them up from the bottom up very on a very technical basis. And I think that over time he's gotten a lot better at uh, being able to communicate the vision better is just a really tangible example of a direct improvement. And then also leading all of us, I think he's done. Yeah, he, he wasn't always the best, but he's <laughs> not. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think it's like the proof is in the pudding. The people that he's hired, the people that we're hiring, um, the people that we're together with, the resource allocation, all of that's just gotten miles better. And Wall and I are still waiting for you fan to get good at something, but we'll, we'll call you back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I will say that uh, fans always been a very clear thinker and a critical thinker, but I've been increasingly, sort of constantly increasingly impressed by his, by his ability to just, you know, look at any question and then strip away all of the non-essential stuff and say, this is what we need to attack. And then you spend, you know, you can spend a day or two thinking about it and you realize in five minutes he's got straight to the core of that issue. And I guess, we, you know, we were, we were in grad school at the same time, but our interactions were limited. But like from, from day one, uh, I've seen that, but it's just been more and more obvious over time that this is like, he can just, you know, hit the nail on the head almost every single time in, and in way less time than anyone else does. Really complicated technical problems like that's so, so essential to be able to cut through yeah. to the, yeah, the essence of the problem. Figure out what's kind of a little bit superfluous and what's the fun. So, <laughs> so kind of, this is maybe a weird question, then we'll jump into the last few because we're getting to the end. If, if Matt had to be taken out of the equation, maybe mafia style, what have you, and the rest of you had to had to had a week to prepare for a Hunger Games type showdown to become the new the new CEO. Who do you guys think would make it? You, you put money on this, like have a pool, and you can't put money on yourself because that's just unfair. Who who do you think would like Hunger Games their way to the end to become the new CEO? If Matt was taken uh, out, I, I think actually this is this is the wrong question because Matt's job is horrible. <laughs> 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 this would be a Hunger Games of who didn't have to take his job, who jumps back the fastest. <laughs> um, that's a good answer matt you're 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 safe you're safe you know like <laughs> especially from the silicon valley tv show it's like it seems like ceos kind of get dragged out sometimes but it, it looks like the people that's on your team like they'll, they'll make sure that no one makes you sleep with the fishes the, <laughs> <laughs> so one question for matt that i wanted to ask is that you you, you guys are i looked at your 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 homepage and it was like scientist 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 science you know very scientist centric but there has to be some admin or organizational staff and if not like when will that part of the startup develop no no we're actually in the process of uh working on that as well yeah you know, so if you monitor the if you monitor the website you may see some other uh non-technical jobs popping up. We've posted for a director of intellectual property, for instance, which is more of a, a legal job. Yeah, I think if you if you start watching, you'll you'll see a few other positions in the next months. Is there anyone is there anyone you're looking for in the I don't know if they would they'd probably have to be in the Austin, Texas area, but is there anyone that maybe potentially listening would be like, hey, I fit those that 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 uh that role. But you is there like what? a dream people? Honestly, we want just really awesome people and we're willing to make room for them, even if we weren't thinking about uh, hiring for a specific need. 
I mean, so I would just say anyone who is listening and thinking Paradromics sounds really exciting, I would really like to work for Paradromics, send an email to careers, uh, go to our page, find the, find the uh, careers link and just send us an email because, um, you know, sometimes some of our best, actually, some of our best people came to us and applied for, you know, like, I'll give you an example, Amir, he applied for, he's an electrical engineer, he applied for a computer scientist position just because he wanted to come here. And we looked at his CV and thought, we're not looking for that right now, but how could we say no? We, you know, we hired him and he's just a totally indispensable member of our team now. And he's, he's awesome. And it was one of the best decisions that we've made. So yeah, if you're interested in paradromics, I think that's the number one qualification for like working is that you just be really psyched and interested in the field. Yeah, so give us a call. Yeah, I mean, and to add to that, well, I mean, you know, I can't think of a single problem that he's a single project or problem that he's had to tackle that he, he hasn't been able to compete and come up with a, a yeah. really solid, really compelling answer to. Yeah, I and, should just you know, say, we love people like that. I should, yeah, I should just say I invited Yifan and Kanal here today, but I could have easily grabbed any other two people from the team and we would have had the same interesting discussion. We have an awesome team. I think that's probably the greatest pull when people come and interview with us is uh, the team. And really solid. I mean, the work that we're doing is on display for the world to see. So um, there are a lot of startups, I would say, that um, are super secretive and you never know what they're doing. And then people go and interview there and are underwhelmed. But that won't be Perdromix. You're not someone who's keeping an AI in the basement and doing weird things. I from just for, we, we put it we put it in the front yard. Yeah. I don't know whether to question that or not. But so uh, all right, that's that's good to know. It's okay. So there's a there's a, a CEO who mentioned that he really likes learning about philosophy, like different like religions and stuff okay. like that. And so he said that if you if you added a quote or a citation from a, a text of some sort, like the the Dao Di Zhang, but like text like that, if you like started it with that, saying, "Hey, this is what I thought of this," and by the way, I, here's me, and this is what I'm looking for, help stand out more. Like he's he's already gonna read everything, but like I think that would make the person stand out more. So I'm just curious, is there anything like nerdy like that oh, that oh, would help well, people? Yeah, I was just I was just sorting through over a hundred applications for one of our positions. And one of the things that I would say makes a huge difference is when people just say, I'm applying here for this reason. I, you know, I think generic applications, and this is for anyone who's applying to a startup, startups, they're so limited in who they can hire that if they receive like a generic cover letter, unless your skills are super differentiating and you're an all-star, they're probably not going to spend a lot of time with your application. It's really helpful to get, it's really helpful when people start off with, I'm applying to paradromics because I am really interested in this and I read about this or I listened to this. I'll spend a lot of time with every application where someone spent a lot of time applying. I think that's fair. I think that, I think that is very consistent for the people I've talked with where it's like thoughtfulness begets thoughtfulness. And additionally, when people think, oh, I don't have a PhD in wizardry or whatever you're looking for, but Maybe they're like they're a hungry person that will that will be like the person you mentioned who's just going to be even better even though they're not for that one position you find another role for them. Uh, a person I was talking to recently said that skills are a commodity, but character traits are what you build a company around. And so 
I think that from what I've heard from this conversation, that it's very similar to your setup where it's like you, you build a team and you, you know that granted they have to have certain skills like because you have to build something that can be awesome. But like there's there's an intrinsic things about people or that makes them special that you want on the team that makes it multiplicatively better. Just as me like echoing your point. Like I think there's like a, like a subtle point there that I would like I wanted to blow up a little bit. One of the things we really like to see is we like to meet people who are really excited about one thing and have really gone deep on one thing, even if it's, uh, you know, even if it's the physics of the golf ball, it doesn't matter. Like it could, or it could be like Elizabethan literature. Like if someone, I think there's something that happens when you go really deep on something and really commit yourself to becoming an expert on that and, and really for a limited period of time, block off everything else and specialize. It almost doesn't matter what you specialize in, but uh, the act of really, the act of really thinking deeply about something. Uh, many people will just never think deeply about anything. And but once you've thought deeply about something and you've gone through that exercise and you've really committed yourself to something, I think it's pretty easy to go in and do something else and be really good at it. I was kind of hoping you'd end it at some people. Most people don't ever think deeply about anything. It's <laughs> just, just ah, <laughs> you're so, you can, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that'll be the end of the episode. I won't even have an outro. It'll just be some people don't think yeah. deeply about anything. <laughs> That's also why, also why I think people should just follow their interests. That's something else I believe in very strongly. Is that don't let don't let people like railroad you into studying AI because they tell you that this is the new thing. You have to study it. I think often the people who are real innovators followed their own interests and then drove the field rather than flocking. That, that is definitely one of those things that I think most people miss is that like, don't go where the puck is, go where the puck is going. And the best way to do that is like, I think what you've highlighted here is where if you're passionate about something and you become the expert and you delve into it, you're going to know where that puck's going within that niche. And you become kind of like a mini monopoly in, the, in that, those experiences and skill sets. So it's, it's much better instead of being like, oh, I got to jump onto AI. I don't, want, I, don't want, I, wanna, I don't want the overlords to think I wasn't supportive of them, which is a, a Silicon Valley reference. But, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, but you know, it's like, like, like Jeff Bezos says, that your passions, you don't pick your passions, your passions pick you. Is there, is there a good call to action that you'd like to leave people with? It, like, normally I ask, like, how could you guys follow along? But that's really lame. And they can follow paradromics.com. It's really easy. It'll be in the show notes. So is there, some, is there like, maybe that's the message, like what we just said, that's the message. But for the three of you, if you, had, if you could speak to a younger version of yourself that's listening to this podcast, loving what they're hearing, or maybe just like, what is this? And curious. What would you say to them? What would you make, want them to think about to, to make the most value out of their uniqueness? Maybe better find themselves. A book recommendation, a thought exercise, anything. You, you can say anything, but you can't swear because I don't want to edit that out. <laughs> I would say that, keep it, keeping in line with what we talked about before, I would say that building things is hard. Building things that work is not trivial. Every part of it needs to work correctly. When you put it together, it's not as simple as say when you're in school, if you're in school doing homework, your, your problems are cooked. They're cooked so that they actually work and you know what you need to do to solve them. When you start actually trying to build something, especially if you're trying to build something new or complex, you really have to be right on every point for it to work. 
And so that's the big reason that it's really important to specialize and really dig deep and understand what you're doing. Because if you don't, you're either not going to be able to do it or it's going to take you way too long to do something. And I think that's really a big differentiator between people who are just really great and people who not necessarily as committed in that way. And it's more of a commitment, I think, than being a genius, right? It's not, that, it's not that people necessarily look at a problem and instantly understand all the ramifications, but they have to dutifully, you know, map that out. Yeah, the people who look at things and understand all the problems side of them have experience doing that. And that's the reason that they can do that at a glance. It's not because anyone, you know, is born with an understanding of calculus. I was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm teaching myself calculus now. That's not true. All right. So Yafan's, uh, Yafan's uh, defended his, his position and why he's special and <laughs> how he's a patron, uh, dig deep. What about you, Matt and uh, Kunal? I'll let Kunal go, go, go next so I can be like most clever at the end. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking because I'm still... Um, you want me to go? Uh, well, I, I guess I would say... In, I would say younger younger version of myself probably thought, oh, you know, maybe maybe some of my uh, interests or hobbies are like because they're not exactly totally mainstream. Think hard about whether I want to do them, and, and I think I'm glad I did. But um, but I guess I would tell myself to be sort of more confident and just do the things that I find interesting because those are things that led me here. You were talking about like I think Matt was saying, you know, even if you're not interested in what everyone thinks is fashionable to do it anyway and um, probably tell myself to commit to that a little bit more than I did. That's great. What about you, Matt? Round it off. Um, I, I would say me 10 years ago kind of overvalued and, and idolized the, the solitary genius, you know, sitting in his lab, ideating and kind of, um, you know, making breakthroughs on his or her own. And um, I think now, like, now I'm starting to recognize that big, like, big impact is, um, has to do with, like, bringing a lot of people together. And that that's, I mean, that is, if you look around at, like, successful endeavors that have had a huge impact on people, it's not, it, it, you know, there's a place for, you know, individual contributors who come up with one theory that revolutionizes the world. But I think by and large, a lot of the dirt and, and movement and, you know, construction of civilization has to do with organizing activities and inspiring people and getting the right mix of talent on a problem. I think that's, and you can develop your talent. And I will, I'll, I'll end this because this is something that I will t I tell people all the time. There's free online courses. There are professors that will answer your questions. And if you can't find a professor or someone smart who will answer your questions, find someone better who will answer your questions. Because there are so many people out there who will take the time to help you. If you, if you are passionate, if you are interested and you care, like if you, if, if you called up Matt and you said, hey, I, lo I loved this podcast. I, I really liked the way you talked about this one aspect of it. I guarantee Matt would be like, oh, wow, someone cares about what I care about. He would he'd want to talk to you unless he's really busy. But, you know, for the most part, like this is the greatest age to live in to redefine who you are and lead your passions because you can pretty much learn anything on the internet. Like it's, it's not hard to learn like base skills. It's the experience factor that usually comes in. It's a little bit more difficult. But for everyone out there who's thinking, oh, I don't, I don't know Python. Oh, I don't know how to interface with the brain and, and do what Paradromics is doing. 
send them an email. They don't, they won't hide their stuff in the, in the, in the basement. They'll, they'll probably give you some suggestions. They'll put it right on the lawn on what you can do to like build yourself to be someone that can work with them. And that was Matt Kunal and Yafan of Paradromics. We got into how to get involved, what they are building, some of the nerdiness that they get into in their daily lives and how they came together. Other than that, I want to inform people before we go that there is a new way to show support for the podcast and to keep it advertisement free from now until forever, which is called Patreon. If you go to Patreon and look for Learning with Lowell, you'll see this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell this year, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.